I remain standing for our sermon text from Isaiah 25, the first nine verses. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels are of old faithfulness and truth. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of the aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, today, help us to understand your word and to learn how to trust in you, to wait on you, and to anticipate your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You'll notice there's no sermon handout today. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. One, one reason is where I intended to go with this sermon, I didn't quite go all the way there, and a good 20 minutes of what I would have said is on the chopping blocks, so to speak, so it is going to be about what the title says, but I was going to spend more time on verse 9 and have a few different applications, but that's okay. As I got into the text, it took me in different directions, and so here we are. We're going to walk through these nine verses and make some observations and applications along the way. Isaiah prophesied, we need to get some context here, Isaiah prophesied to the southern tribe of Judah in about 700 B.C. And his message, and he prophesied over a period of time around 700 B.C. And his message that God was about to judge all nations, including Judah, all had sinned and everyone had fallen short of the glory of God. 
including God's people, Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. So the southern kingdom of Judah was not being faithful to the covenant. You remember that the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken into exile because of their unfaithfulness to God and His covenant. And now Judah is being idolatrous, immoral, unfaithful. So God's judgment was coming on them as well. It's also coming on the ungodly nations around them. So that's the bad news that Isaiah gives to God's people throughout his book, throughout his prophecy in around 700 B.C. But Isaiah also gives good news for the people of God. The good news is that God's great judgment and judgments would give way to even greater salvation and restoration. So, one way to look at Isaiah, the whole book, Isaiah's double message throughout his prophecy is first, that God is coming in judgment, and second, that God is coming in salvation. Judgment will come by way of, I'm sorry, salvation will come by way of judgment. So this double message of judgment and salvation runs through the whole book. And both sides of this message, the judgment side and the salvation side, are here in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is a microcosm of Isaiah's whole prophecy. Isaiah 25 is something of a summary or a condensed version of the entire book. The good news in Isaiah, the good news in Isaiah 25, is that God's judgment is not the end of the story for God's people. For those who wait on God, the end of the story is eternal salvation, eternal life, eternal joy, no more death, no more sadness. And the central message in Isaiah 25 is in verses 6 to 8. The climax is verse 8. That's the very center point. It says that one day God will swallow up death forever. One day He will wipe away all the tears from our faces. He's going to relieve sorrow forever. He's going to destroy death forever. See, verse 8 makes a connection between death and sorrow. And it's not hard for us to make that connection. It's not hard for us to understand why Isaiah makes that connection between death and sorrow. Nothing brings sorrow like the death of a loved one. Is there a deeper sorrow than for a parent to lose a child, for example? Death is not good. It's, it's not our friend. It's our foe. There's nothing intrinsically good about death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is our enemy that Jesus will destroy. So death and sorrow are not normal. They're not normal features of the creation. They're not how it's supposed to be. God's good and perfect creation in Genesis 1 did not include death and sorrow for His people. And so the good news is that death and sorrow are not going to be around forever. They're temporary. They're a result of the fall. And they will go away 
one day. One day they will be swallowed up, destroyed, never to return again. That's the hope that Isaiah offers, that God offers here in Isaiah 25, especially verse 8. Now Isaiah 25 is composed of three sections. The first section, which goes from verse 1 to verse 5, is a song that Isaiah directs to God. It's a personal song of deliverance and gratitude for what God has done, especially in overthrowing their enemies, Israel's enemies and God's enemies. And what we see about this song is that it's intensely personal. It's in the first person singular. And this is Isaiah's song to God. And it provides for us an example of what our individual relationship with God can look like, should look like. The second section goes from verse 6 to verse 8. And this second section is the heart of the whole chapter. Here Isaiah gives us a vision of a time when God's people will get to eat and drink with God on His holy mountain. A time when death and sadness will be replaced with life and joy and feasting as God swallows up death and wipes away sorrow. Now the third section, which we won't won't spend as much time on, the third paragraph we could call it, goes from verse 9 to verse 12, and it celebrates God's salvation for those who wait on God. But also, it celebrates God's judgment on the proud. And that is something to look forward to, even celebrate. The New Testament certainly encourages us to look forward to that. When God will make everything right, and He will judge His enemies. He will save the humble, and He will humble the proud. Verse 9 is another song, but this time it's in the first person plural. Not the first person singular, I, but First person plural, we. So this time it's the whole people of God, the congregation, singing corporately, not just Isaiah. So that's an overview of this passage that we're going to look at. Let's look at Isaiah's song in verses 1 to 5. Isaiah begins with words of praise directed to God. And we get a glimpse here of Isaiah's intimate relationship with God, don't we? He uses the first person plural, Three times just in the first half of the first verse. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. And so that sets the tone for the whole song. It's personal. See, for Isaiah, God is not a far off, distant God. He's not an impersonal being that we can't know or that we can't get close to. No, Isaiah knows God. And he addresses God as someone he knows intimately. And so this intensely personal affirmation sets the the tone for the whole song. So in place of the, the raucous drinking songs whose purpose was to ignore sorrows and and drown their sorrows with booze, those kinds of songs have been around forever since the fall. Instead of those, Isaiah's song is one of heightened awareness of God and who He is. And it celebrates the true freedom that comes with submitting to God, committing oneself to God. 
True freedom comes when you commit and submit to God. The singer, who I'm assuming here is Isaiah, is essentially telling God, I want, I, I want a being like you for my God. I want to belong to, to one who is more powerful than I am. To one who is faithful as you are. I don't want to be my own God. I want to humble myself before you. You've shown me that you truly belong to me. That you are faithful to me. That you keep your word to me. That you will not abandon me. And so I want to belong to you. You've always been faithful to me. Even when I was afraid. And even though I thought you had forgotten me. You are my God. Isaiah's personal note here is helpful to us. It's a helpful reminder that God deals with people not just as a group, as a corporate entity, but also as individuals. Every individual in the group, in the corporate entity, counts, is important, is known by God. Every individual, individual can have a unique and personal experience with God. After all, God's salvation is not just corporate. It's also individual, personal. God's corporate salvation of His church is worked out in the salvation of individual people with names. Individuals who call on the Lord. Individuals who walk with Christ and who talk to God In prayer, God's salvation is personal. It's relational. God saved you to have a relationship with you. Isaiah knew this because he experienced it. He knew it firsthand. It goes back before Isaiah though. Genesis 5 says that Enoch walked with God. And you can walk with God too. You can know God. You can be close to Him And enjoy Him. Each of the three persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead, is more personal than anyone else you know, including yourself. They feel and love more deeply than anyone else. You see, your personalism, your your personal character, nature, stems from God's. And it's only a dim reflection of how personal God is. So we can ask as we read this song, this prayer, this poem of Isaiah's, do you talk to the Lord to the, the way Isaiah does here? Do you walk with God the way Enoch did? Do you tell God that you love Him the way David did? Do you say to God, you are my God? Do you tell Jesus, you are my Lord and my God and I love you? That's a biblical way to talk to Jesus. That's how David talked to Yahweh in the Psalms. David's opening words in Psalm 18 are, I love you, Lord. That's how it begins. I love you, Yahweh. So do you feel comfortable saying that sort of thing to the Lord Jesus? Listen to the first three verses of Psalm 18. Listen how personal it is. O Lord, my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Lord is my rock. And my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Is this how you pray? 
if you feel awkward praying this way, it's because you don't have that deep personal connection to God that Enoch and David and Isaiah and Paul had. But you see, if you don't have this kind of deep personal connection to God, it's because you don't pray this way. The kind of relationship with God that we're talking about here is cultivated. It's cultivated over time. It's cultivated through prayer, through spending time with God, through singing to God the way Isaiah does. And as you learn to talk to God and walk with God the way the holy men and women of Scripture did, as you learn to exercise the emotions that are in the prayers, especially in the Psalms, as you learn how to cry out to your father as a small child cries out to her dad, as you learn to sing to God, your knowledge of God and your personal connection with God will grow and deepen. Augustine said that songs are for lovers. Only lovers sing songs to each other. And Isaiah is singing a song to God because he loves God. He is loved by God. We also need to ask, why is Isaiah singing to the Lord? In the second half of verse 1, Isaiah says to the Lord, For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and true. That's why Isaiah is singing to God. And I want you to look at the second half of verse 1. It would be a good sermon to have your Bible open as we walk through these verses. Look at the second half of verse 1. If you're using the New King James Version as I am, it says, you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and true. Now, The main thing I want you to see is that the word wonderful and the word counsels should probably go together. They're, they're right next to each other in the Hebrew. And another perfectly grammatical translation would be, for you have done wonderful things. Counsels, And this would change a little bit how the rest of the verse goes. And so it, it might go like this. Second half of verse 1 could read, For from of old you have performed your wonderful counsels, which are faithfulness and truth. The point is that God has carried out His plans. He will continue to carry out His plans with utter faithfulness. He will keep His promises. He will do His wonderful counsels. Make sure they come to pass. Now, there's a reason I pointed this out. What does wonderful counsels bring to your mind during this time of year? It should remind you of another passage in this book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 lists names of the Messiah. And one of the names for the future Messiah is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. In Isaiah 9, those two words are the same cognates as the two words in Isaiah 25 that we're looking at. Wonderful counsels and wonderful counselor. The same Hebrew cognates there. So what is Isaiah 25, verse 1, the second half, talking about? He's talking about the wonderful counsels, the wonderful deeds that will be performed by whom? The wonderful Counselor. Jesus is that wonderful counselor that Isaiah envisions. And the wonderful counsels that Isaiah envisions include the salvation that the wonderful counselor accomplishes for his people. God's wonderful counsels 
that he planned from of old, even before the foundation of the world, they started taking shape when the wonderful Counselor entered into history and took on human flesh and died on a cross and rose from the dead and ascended in that resurrection body to the right hand of the Father where He reigns and rules over heaven and earth. This is how the wonderful Counselor began to establish the wonderful counsels of Yahweh. Verse 2 explains that some of God's wonderful counsels explains what some of God's wonderful counsels include. They include the destruction of the city of man. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin. The city of God will stand forever. But the city of man and its palace, Isaiah says here, will be made a heap and a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. When Jesus returns in glory, He will overthrow what is left of human tyranny. He will humble all the works of human pride. He will judge the wicked and reward the righteous. The city of God will be established and the city of man will be destroyed forever. Never to be rebuilt again. And what will be the result of God's judgment more specifically? We see that in verse 3. The result is that people will recognize God for who He is. They will acknowledge and glorify God. They will glorify King Jesus. And they will fear Him. Verse 3 says that the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrifying nations will fear you. See, they're, they're terrifying nations. They terrify people. They're terrible in that sense, but they will ultimately fear God. Or as Philippians 2, 10 11 put it, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this world, in this age, there are two kinds of people. The kind that bow the knee of Jesus and the kind who do not. Humanity is divided into those two categories. Those who bow the knee to Jesus and those who do not. But in the world to come, there will only be one kind of person from one angle. The kind that bow the knee to Jesus. Every knee will bow sooner or later. For some, this will come only after God brings them to ruin and destruction and judgment on the last day. Verse 4 says that if the poor and the needy have God, they have more than they need. They have a stronghold that is far stronger than any fortified city in the city of uh, fortified uh, structure in the city of man. If God is your stronghold, if the Lord is your fortification, then you have a shelter from the most turbulent storm. You have a shade from the fiercest, hottest heat. In the last part of verse 4 there, Isaiah says that God is a wall, a strong wall between His people and the storm that would destroy His people. 
When the storm comes, it runs not into the people, but into the wall. It runs into God. So the blast and the terrible storms, they are stopped by the wall of God. I love watching storms. There's no feeling like watching a storm, a dangerous storm, from a safe place, right? Storm watching is exhilarating as long as you have shelter. Storms can be enjoyed instead of feared as long as there is some kind of a wall between you and the storm. As long as you're experiencing it in a secure refuge. God is that refuge. He is your refuge in verse 4. He is the wall between you and the storm. He is the cloud of shade between you and the scorching heat. The wonderful counselor took that storm. He took the heat, the judgment on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the wall between you and God's judgment, which is ultimately what that storm represents. The cross is your shade from the heat of God's wrath. Look back up at the beginning of verse 4. Who is it that receive God's strength? Who in particular does God give His strength to? Isaiah says that God is strength to the poor and to the needy. In Isaiah 25, God brings down the strong. He brings down the self-sufficient. He brings down those who are full of their own strength. Those who are proud. And He gives His strength to whom? To the poor and to the needy. He gives His strength to those who have none of their own and who know it. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who are spiritually needy and know it, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs, he says. He, he takes pleasure in needs, in persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, when I am needy, then I am strong. Do you see yourself as poor and needy before God? Or are you pretty self-sufficient? Are you always the one who wants to be giving to others and providing for others and never the one who's in need receiving from others? Are you full of pride and pretense in this way? See, according to Isaiah in this passage, it's the poor and the needy in particular who can count on God to be their strength, their fort, their shelter, their wall against the storm, their shade against the heat. Verse 5 is the final verse in Isaiah's song. It speaks of how God will defend His people from the oppression of foreigners, which are referred to as aliens in the New King James. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the terrible, terrible ones will be humbled or diminished. 
This shows how easily and quickly and silently and effortlessly God overcomes the strong and the proud as heat in the shadow of a cloud. On a hot day when the clouds slip between the sun and the earth, between you and the scorching heat, they produce moments of blessed coolness, especially if you're outside working. They provide relief from the oppressive sun. In the same way, God interposes Himself into hopeless situations to humble the proud and to save His people from oppression. Isaiah's song, especially verses 2-5, to teach us two important lessons. The first lesson is that human pride and human well-being are incompatible. They do not mix. Human pride and human well-being cannot exist in the same person. Or we could say in the same family. Or in the same church. Or in the same nation. Human pride and human well-being are completely incompatible. The second lesson, which is related to this, is this. God is committed to human well-being. In particular, God is committed to the well-being of His people, His new humanity, His redeemed humanity. He is your refuge and strength and wall and shade because He is committed to your well-being, your peace, your shalom, the peace as we read in Philippians 4 that passes all understanding. He's committed to that for you. So what do we get when we put these two principles together? If it's true that human pride and human well-being are incompatible, and Isaiah makes that perfectly clear here, and if it's true that God is committed to your well-being, and Isaiah makes that same principle clear here as well, this means that God is also committed to destroying your pride. He will destroy the proud at the end but for his people, he, he has to destroy that pride now, before the end. No one escapes the pride-crushing hand of God. You'll either receive it as his friend or on the last day as his enemy. But you see, it's better to have your pride crushed in this life. It's better to have your pride crushed in this life than in the life to come. So if God's not dealing with your pride, He's not making you poor and needy, if He's not bringing you face to face with your spiritual neediness, then you're not a child of God. When, de when God destroys your pride, it is for your well-being. It hurts, as all discipline does, but it is for your good. It makes you weak, which actually makes you strong. Isaiah's song in verses 1 to 5 sets the table for the joyful banquet in verses 6 to 8. These three verses, and this is the fun part of this passage and sermon, these three verses contain one of the most beautiful descriptions in the whole Bible of God's kingdom and God's salvation. What will God do for his people? What will his salvation look like? 
Verse 6 says that the Lord will spread a feast on his holy mountain for all peoples, all nations. It will be a feast, Isaiah says, God says, of rich food and well-aged wine. That's what wines on the lees means. It means wine that is refined and well-aged. Verse 6 is a good verse to show someone who insists that all the references to wine in the Bible really mean grape juice. The wine of God's kingdom banquet is not only real wine, it's well-aged wine. But the wine is not the most shocking thing in verse 6. What's even more unthinkable is that God will give His people His rich food. The rich food there is one word in Hebrew, and it means fats, fatness. On this mountain, the Lord will spread a feast of fatness. The Bible is not anti-fat. In Scripture, the fat portions of the meat were considered the best. That was God's portion. In Psalm 63.5, David says to God, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. The fatty portions of the Old Covenant sacrifices were reserved for God, not the high priest. The richest food in the Old Testament belonged to God alone. In the tabernacle and temple, God alone ate the fat and rich food, and God alone drank the wine libations. That were poured out. The priests could not drink wine in God's house. It was forbidden. The priests could not eat God's portions. In the Old Covenant, the only one who ate fat and drank wine on God's holy mountain was God Himself. But here in Isaiah 25.6, God gives the fatty food his people he shares the best portions with you you get to drink well-aged wine and eat the richest food in his presence on his mountain on his holy hill on mount zion as new covenant believers we are more privileged than any high priest was in the old covenant you get to eat the lord's food And drink the Lord's wine at the Lord's table. The final fulfillment of the banquet in verse 6 is still in the future. It's still to come. We're still waiting on it. The final fulfillment of verse 6 will be when Jesus returns and sets up His eternal feast in the resurrection. But you get to experience the initial fulfillment of verse 6 now. Every Lord's Day you will get to experience it again in just a few minutes as we eat the bread and we drink the wine that God has set before us at His table. The bread and the wine are the richest food and drink on earth. The finest wine. It's the best that God has to offer. In fact, at the Lord's table, God doesn't just give you His portion He gives you Himself. He gives you Himself. At the Lord's table, you get to partake of the sacrifice who put an end to all 
sacrifices. The Lord's Supper is a feast of rich food and aged wine that God gives to people, every, His people every week on His holy mountain. So do you realize what's going on? Can you, can you see how what we do is connected with what Isaiah was talking about almost three millennia ago? You are on God's holy mountain right now. You're at the banquet, the initial phase of that banquet. And yet, it is true, the Lord's Supper is only a foretaste of, a, of an even greater feast to come. What we are doing here today is only the initial fulfillment of verse 6. There's far more to come. Yes, we're really eating and drinking with God right now on His mountain, but it does not compare with the joy and the festive banquet that awaits us, that awaits the people of God. But you see, something must happen from Isaiah's perspective. Something must happen before God's people can enjoy this eschatological banquet. Eschatological banquet just means end times banquet. The the banquet at the end, toward the end. In verse 7, we see that the people who come to the great feast come with veils on their faces. And these veils must be lifted. And in light of verse 8, we know that the, veil, the veils of verse 7 are the shroud of death. See, before any human can experience the joy of God's great feast, something must be done about the universal curse of death. The grim reaper awaits everyone. The curse of death plagues every person who will ever live The cold hand of death sooner or later blights every human happiness. But the good news is that God will swallow up that shroud of death. Isaiah doesn't just say that the death will be removed. What's he say? He says it will be consumed. It will be swallowed up once and for all, forever, destroyed. And I want you to look closely at what Isaiah says at the beginning of verse 7. Where will God swallow up death forever? Where where will this take place? On that same mountain. Which is Mount Zion. Which is where Jesus died and rose from the dead. The death and resurrection of Christ is what swallows up death and sin definitively and someday the resurrected Christ will return to put a final end to death and sorrow verse 8 looks ahead to this final day unlike your present joy your future joy will be completely free of death completely free of shame or reproach completely free of loneliness depression completely free of sin Verse 8 says that one day God will swallow up all those things. He will swallow up death. He will wipe away tears from all faces. And He will take away our reproach, which means our shame. God will swallow it up forever. Your sadness. Can you imagine a world in which you are 100% immune to death and sadness 
and shame. That future world is coming. It's our hope. And that future world, that future world is what Paul is talking about when he refers to the hope of glory. The world to come is what we are about to eat and drink too. When we eat and drink with God on His holy mountain every Lord's Day, we are memorializing the death and the resurrection of the wonderful Counselor on that holy mountain. But we're also anticipating the future and final and full fulfillment of the great feast. When we eat and drink with God today, we're eating and drinking as those who have received new life from God already. God has conquered sin and death in us. But when we eat and drink with God on the last day, we will be eating and drinking in our resurrected bodies, our new creation bodies, that will be like His new body, resurrection body. God will have swallowed up death completely and finally. Everyone who has died in Christ will receive their new bodies. And they will be seated at the banquet. Children who died before their parents will be raised alongside their parents. And they will enter into the great feast with unspeakable joy and no sign of sorrow. Those who were in some way mentally or physically disabled in this world will be perfect in the world to come. Just as we read in the passage from Luke, Jesus began that work of reversing the curse and restoring health in His first coming. But He will, he will do it completely. He'll finish the job in His final coming. But the most glorious thing of all is that we will see Jesus and we will, we will be with Him. We will see Him face to face. And everything I'm saying here is summed up by John in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared, and we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is our hope. That is the hope that we focus on during Advent. What you will be has not yet appeared. But when Jesus appears, when He returns, He will give you your new body. And you will be like Him. And you will see Him as He is. That future reality is what we wait patiently for. For. You're not waiting on anything in this world. Your greatest hope, your greatest longing, your greatest desires, your greatest needs are the life and the joy and the peace and the feasting that you will experience in the next world, in the new creation, in the resurrection. So keep waiting on the Lord. It's worth the wait. Keep seeking Him and you will find Him. Keep trusting in Him because His Word is sure. He always keeps His promises. Keep delighting in Him and He will give you the desires of your heart. 
He may not give you all of your desires in this world, but He will, no doubt, in the world to come. So in closing, I'll read verse 9. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the great salvation that You have given to us in Jesus. Help us to believe Your Word, to believe Your promises, to base our lives on them, and to wait on You, to wait on Your final salvation. Oh Lord, we thank You for this hope. We thank You that You've not been silent on these matters of our salvation and our future hope. Help us to look to You, to look to Your Son, Jesus, and to walk in His Spirit until our final day. In Jesus' name, Amen.